0: Welcome to Praxis, a podcast where we explore how to practice and embody the way of Jesus in our everyday lives. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen. Today, we're talking about our sixth and final core value as a church, which is reconciliation. Um, This is a long one, so buckle up, Uh, but it's a good one. There's a lot to kind of talk about because it gets often misinterpreted. Um, or villainized or kind of like really reduced into one thing. And this is something we really believe as a church. We want to model and join God's reconciling work in the world, be a part of the work that he's doing to right all the wrongs um, and to really lean into what he is doing and what he wants us to be about. So that's where we're headed. Uh, I encourage you to listen with an open mind. Um, and maybe put down some of the frames that you have when you're listening to things. And if you have any questions or things that bubble up where you're like, I don't know about this, like, please reach out to us. We'd love to talk more about this. This isn't just us talking at you, um, but want it to be a dialogue. So with that, here's another episode of Praxis on Reconciliation. Reconciliation.
1: Well, welcome everyone. My name is Mac. I'm Katie. And I'm Cameron. I want to start today by maybe having a controversial moment. Um we're Uh-oh. heading, yep, we're heading into this weekend as daylight savings. And my understanding is that the house passed the elimination of daylight savings, but the Senate mm. has not. Interesting. Is that right, Katie?
2: Yeah, one house passed it, one didn't. I don't okay. remember which.
1: Uh, well, anyways, we're clearly sitting in a divided situation. So that made me wonder, if it were up to you, what would you do? Like, yay, let's continue with daylight savings, or nay, time to be done with it.
2: I mean, I would be done with it. I, don't, I like routine, and I don't like being thrown off my routine. But I also, if I'm correct on this, I think the original reason for it was the farmers, right? Right. <laughs>
1: I heard, I've heard multiple things. I also heard it was part of World War I and like saving energy, mm. um, something mm. related to that. So I think just believe what you want to believe because that's what most people do. Like,
2: well, I guess where I'm going with that is as long as the reasons underpinning its
1: are origination.
2: Valid. Yeah. Well, if they don't exist anymore, then we should get rid of it. Yeah. If they do
0: I'm yeah. Trying if it's, to do the math and figure yeah. out what like what it would mean for the rest of the year if it didn't exist.
1: If it's still serving a purpose you're saying and a legitimate purpose, fine. You're willing yes. to like sacrifice your routine for the common good. Yes. Okay. Cameron? Hmm.
0: Um, I don't mind it. You don't mind the whiplash? Yeah, I mean this one's a little rough, but then the other one's kind of nice. The extra
1: hour's awesome. Yeah. Losing
0: an hour is so it kind, kind of, of out,
1: yeah. All right, well,
0: we're but I can't think of like what it would do for the rest of the year, like how it would affect daily life.
1: Hmm. One thing that I feel would be helpful is in the winter. You'll notice it gets dark at like, like in the darkest days. It's like four fifty here. It's like oh, it's mm-hmm. dark. Um, I would prefer to have that darkness in the morning. And then have it extend, have the light extend later into mm. the day. Mm. So that's is just, that what it would do if they got rid of it? Yes, because okay. it would be darker in the morning, longer. Gotcha. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that'd be fine. Yeah.
1: Well, anyway, we can duke it out later. Um, <laughs> Sounds like everyone's ready to duke it out. <laughs> it does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> bring, your under-
2: argument,
3: bring your best argument. Bring
1: your best argument. Maybe I'll
2: ask Chat GPT.
1: Oh yeah. That'll give you a good answer. Um, all right, we should get started. We're we're in a series right now where we're talking about our core values as a church. Um, we keep quoting Brene Brown here in the introduction because she says we can't live into values we can't name, and so that's what we're trying to do in this series: is is name our values so we can better live into them. And we've covered five of them so far. Um, so just a review: we we discussed discipleship, spirit sensitivity, participation team leadership, and generosity. If you haven't listened to any of those previous episodes, we encourage you to check them out. Today, we wanna discuss our final core value as a church, which is reconciliation. Uh, We believe that reconciliation is at the center of the gospel. So it's not um, like a gospel add-on, it's at the very center of the gospel. And as a church, we're called to model and join God's reconciling work in the world as a peacemaking community. So, I was thinking, you know, it might be helpful to give our listeners um, a theological framework for reconciliation as central to the gospel. Like, that might be a helpful place to start. Um, I came across this quote by Chris Rice. He, Rice, he says, There is wide, a widespread notion in some of the most energetic contemporary Christian movements that the biblical call to reconciliation is solely about reconciling God and humanity with no reference to social realities. So he's saying, hey, there seems to be this common understanding that reconciliation is just about us and God, and it doesn't really have to do with social realities. And I think we're going to say something different than that.
2: Yeah. So, so I, so I hear you saying there's like maybe a vertical reconciliation that we can focus on between us and God. Yep. And maybe a horizontal reconciliation. We can
1: that that is that a lot of people don't seem t- to think is part of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So, yes, what would so, you say to that?
2: Well, when I first hear the term the gospel, um, I have kind of a default response that comes to mind. Right. If you were to ask me, what is the gospel? Um, my default response, I think kind of what I grew up with was the idea that it's really about the afterlife, Hmm. that it's kind of like the plan of salvation gospel. I'm a sinner. I believe in Jesus and I go to heaven when I die. And that's the gospel.
1: And that's how it was presented to you?
2: And that's how it was presented. Mm -hmm. And it was put in little tracks that you hand out to people who don't know so that they can go to heaven too. Um, and on some level, I agree with that, right? Like everything I've just said is true. That is the gospel, but I don't think it's the whole of the gospel, right? I think if we say the gospel begins and ends there, we're missing something. And I think what we're missing is how that translates to like the here and now, to the relationships between each other, which is what you were getting at, Mac.
1: Yeah. What do you think, Cameron, about this idea that, hey, the gospel sort of, at least in Katie's upbringing, sort of equated with a plan of salvation that doesn't have any bearing on social realities.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that that is a fairly normal view because it is a very important part of the gospel, and so it's easy to overemphasize that.
1: Mm -hmm. And do you see it as problematic at all?
0: Um, Yeah, I think that it misses out a lot on what... um, like what God is doing or makes all that other stuff, like you said, feel very secondary or just like an optional thing. Yeah. Um, And I don't know, when I read the Bible, I don't see it as like Jesus only came to do one thing and everything else was just an option. It was like all important to him.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that what God is doing in and through Jesus, like the mission of God um, is so much bigger, so much better, so much more beautiful and amazing than just personal salvation. And in many evangelical environments, the gospel has been equated with just personal forgiveness of sins or the plan of salvation so that you can go to heaven when you die. And what that's done is created this bifurcation or separation between uh, the afterlife and now. Like what what does the gospel really have to do with here and now besides getting people to... Pray a prayer so that they can go to heaven when they die. Right mm-hmm. there, there's little connection there, and then any emphasis on social realities, justice, and righteousness, which actually scripture has a lot to, to say about those topics, is often viewed with suspicion at best, or solicits accusations of sort of adding to the gospel at worst. Mm-hmm. And I think is this is just deeply problematic. I think that I think that the gospel is this declaration that Jesus is King and that through his death, burial and resurrection, God is reconciling all things to himself. I mean, if you just consider Genesis 3, just think about this for a moment. In Genesis 3, we have uh, what's traditionally referred to as the fall where Adam and Eve rebel against God by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm -hmm. And what we see happening there is... Everything is, is, is fractured and shattered as a result. And at least for those who have been part of our community, I often name four like major fractures that took place. So one is our the fracture between us and God. So that's the vertical, like their relationship with God gets broken. Um, then their relationship to themselves. So before the fall, they're they're naked and they feel no shame. But then all of a sudden, when sin enters the world, they realize they're naked and they hide. They cover themselves. They are ashamed. So there's a broken relationship on the inside, an interior bro- brokenness. Their, their relationship to one another gets broken, right? Before, they're living in unity and right relationship with each other. Now they're blaming each other and scapegoating one another, So there's this horizontal piece. And then we even read that there's uh, uh, creation itself is broken. I mean, Romans 8 talks about how like all of creation is groaning for redemption. And so I think part of what's happening is that many people received a gospel that's just about fixing number one, my, my relationship with God, that Jesus came to die for my sins so I could spend eternity with God in heaven. And we want to say, that's true. That's part of the gospel. Like Jesus came to fix number one,
3: Mm
1: -hmm. right? But it doesn't stop there. Jesus came for much more than fixing number one, the the vertical. He also came to repair and put back together every fracture from the fall. I mean, Ephesians 2, Paul talks about how through Jesus' death on the cross, through his blood— he came to, he he destroyed or tore down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. That's horizontal language. Right? In Colossians one, Paul talks about how in in and through Jesus Christ, God is reconciling all things in heaven and on earth to himself. So I just think, um, man, is the gospel about personal salvation? Absolutely. We I would want our listeners to hear that loud and clear. So what you were given, Katie is part of the gospel. The issue I have is that that's not the whole gospel. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when we reduce it to that, we end up with a truncated, myopic, reductionistic gospel that doesn't translate to actually joining God's restorative mission in in the world. And this is not a new problem. I've been doing some reading, sorry, I'm on a little rant here, but during Mm -hmm. uh, the month of February, I was doing some reading of MLK for Mm -hmm. like Black History Month. Mm And I came across this really interesting quote. Um, He said this, he goes, in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers, so he's talking about faith leaders here, pastors, say, quote, those are social issues which the gospel has nothing to do with,
3: Mm -hmm.
1: end quote. And then he says, and I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, Mm -hmm. i.e. it's just about the afterlife, Mm -hmm. which made a strange distinction between bodies and souls, the sacred and the secular. So he's basically just saying like that's a truncated gospel, a distorted gospel. And um, it seems to me that there's some new categories we need. And Honestly, evangelical faith leaders have been drawing attention to this for a long time. So like Leith Anderson, who at one point was the, um, the, the head of the National Association of Evangelicals, was naming this all along. He once said, At the center of the gospel is God's heart to reconcile people to himself and to reconcile people to each other. Reconciliation demonstrates the power of the gospel and reflects Christ's work on the cross that brought us near to God. So in other words, I'm naming, this isn't just like a liberal thing. Like Mm -hmm. this is the president, the president of the national, the face of evangelicalism going, Mm -hmm. of course it's both. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. And you're saying that, while it might feel new to some of us, myself included. Um, it's really not new at all.
1: It's not new at all. It's like embedded in the scriptures themselves and actually like the early church got this nailed this pretty well. Mm -hmm. Like, um, maybe we'll get into that as we keep going. Um, but it seems that evangelicals have adopted a gospel that is actually truncated and has little to do with like what God's doing in the world to bring about justice and righteousness and the flourishing of all people. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Am I, am I too charged up here,
0: Cameron or no, you're pretty charged (laughs) up. Um,
2: it's a quick calculus. Yeah,
0: no, I think it's important to just reiterate that just because we're saying it's more than the personal like relationship with God and being reconciled to God, that we're not saying that it's not that.
1: Yeah, it's not less than that, but it is yeah. more than
0: that. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and one of the things it reminds me of is the uh, kind of Hebrew Old Testament concept of shalom, which means peace. But it's also like way more than just peace. So, one definition I had read said that it's more than just like a mere peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. Um, But it means like universal flourishing, wholeness, delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, I like this, is the way things ought to be.
3: I love that.
0: So it's like a um, kind of returning and reimagining of the perfection that God did create at the beginning, you know, in Genesis 1 and 2, where everything is right and everything is right in the world. And so shalom is the idea that things are the way they should be. And obviously that won't happen entirely until um, like, you know, we look at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, when like kind of all sin is wiped away and everything is made perfect. Um, But we get to be a part of the world getting to that place right now.
1: Hmm. So when you say um, shalom is the way things ought to be, um, and then I hear you anchoring it, and we get glimpses of the way it's it ought to be in Genesis mm-hmm. one and two and Revelation Revelation twenty one and twenty two. So like the bookends of the of of the scriptures, yeah. And clearly the way things ought to be are the way God designs them to be, the mm-hmm. way God wants them to be. So yeah. it's not just how anybody wants them to be. You're saying the reference point for how it ought to be is God, God himself.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: And we see that most clearly in the beginning and the end of scripture. Um, And perhaps maybe even in like the ministry of Jesus, like you get these, because he's revealing who God is. If you see me, you see the father. So like Mm -hmm. Jesus is also revealing God's shalom, right?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: What do you think about that, Katie?
2: Yeah, I love it. I think... um the idea of Shalom is encompassing like basically how things were when God originally created the earth, like in the garden of Eden makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, I was in that camp that you were talking about Mac that um, probably would have been really uncomfortable with this conversation 15 years ago, hmm. you know, like early twenties Katie, because I sort of inherited this gospel that was just about vertical reconciliation. Um, I wouldn't have said that these things weren't important, but I certainly would have been uncomfortable with them thinking of them as part of the gospel. But it's really what Cameron's talking about, like painting that image of this is God's original design. How can we partner with God to move closer to that? Um, I think that's what sort of helped helped fill it out for me.
1: Yeah. I think what's interesting too, you said the word return in that definition at some point, Cameron. And Mm -hmm. what struck a chord with me as I was listening to you is that um, return implies that we're um, like things are broken and we need to be part of restoring things that are not right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like we need to be advocates um, towards shalom. Mm -hmm. Like we we as a people come against those things that are getting in the way of shalom.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right.
1: Which I, I would imagine for some people might feel a little bit like, well, what does that mean?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You
0: know, mm-hmm. what, what are you saying? Yeah, for sure. And it's kind of messy in the in-between. Um, and there are things that we want to see changed that we might never see actually restored mm-hmm. and changed. Um, I really like this verse from Jeremiah 29. It's right before the famous Jeremiah 29, 11. Like Where I know God has
1: a perfect plan for your yes. life.
0: Um, so the context of it is Israel is an exile. So they've been like violently ripped out of their land by Babylon mm-hmm. um, as a way of God like judging them. And so they're in this foreign place and this place that feels really hostile. Um, and God doesn't say like, hey, Hope that one day you'll be able to escape here and go somewhere else. Um, Instead, he says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number, do not decrease. Also seek the peace, so shalom, and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you. This pagan, godless city. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it it prospers, you too will prosper. Hmm. This feels very opposite of like the escapist when we just focus on the personal gospel side. It's like, well, I just need to get out of here and get to heaven so things will be better. That's like the exact opposite of what God calls his people to do when they're in a very difficult spot.
1: Oh, that's so good. So like this personal plan of salvation gospel leads to an escapist theology. Mm -hmm. And you're saying, hey, look at the instructions that Jeremiah gives to the people of Israel when they're in a pagan place.
0: A more hostile culture than our culture right Yes. Now. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah.
1: Right. And one of, those, one of those elements is to seek peace mm-hmm. in this place. And, you know, as we see uh, the number of Christians, like the fastest growing religious group are religious nuns and duns. Mm-hmm. So like we see the church in the United States shrinking uh, with each passing generation. I think we're increasingly realizing and, and, and the New Testament gives us this identity that we are exiles. We're to consider ourselves foreigners. We're citizens of heaven. This is not our home. But we are supposed to be doing exactly what Jeremiah said, which is seeking shalom in the here and now.
2: hmm Yeah, can I add something else to that? Mm -hmm. That I think the idea of what we're calling kind of escapist theology, like we'll just hang on until the afterlife and then it'll all be fine. I think that's. Or the
1: rapture. (laughs) Yeah. You know, whenever we get sucked out of this place.
2: Yeah. That brings back a lot of memories from childhood as well. That's a separate episode. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I think that idea is much more. you know, palatable or accessible for those of us that live fairly comfortable lives, right? Like it's one thing for me to say, oh, the here and now doesn't matter all that much. Let's just wait until we get to heaven. But if I look at someone whose life is lived in a a place of oppression or injustice or violence, people who live in the middle of conflict— I think for them, it um, there's a different reality. And for me to look at it and go like, well, you know, this doesn't really matter. Like, just wait till you get to heaven and then it'll be fine. Well, easy for me to say. Right. Right. But those are the people who, who need us to work for Shalom in the here and now.
1: Yeah, because it matters. Their life matters. is hanging in the balance. Mm-hmm. And, and the more insulated we are from those realities, the more that escapist theology feels normal. Mm-hmm right? But when you're exposed to uh, oppression and exploitation, there's this deep visceral cry for justice mm-hmm. for things to be made right.
2: Mm-hmm. And there's a cost. There's a cost to, the, to those people Yes, for everyone else not working towards Shalom.
1: All right. Here's a question. I've been talking about this stuff for a long time. So this, this isn't necessarily new to me, but over the last few years, I've noticed that some of these things that we're talking about, are just kind of being put under the category of being woke. And that's used in sort of a pejorative or dismissive way, you know? Oh, you're just being woke? Um, you know, kind of Cameron, like your good friend Soren Kierkegaard says, uh, <laughs> when you label me, you negate me, to quote Kierkegaard. So like if I can slap this woke label on you, then I can sort of negate what you're saying. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So just raise it. I would imagine some of our listeners might be, you know, eavesdropping in on this conversation, going, "Oh, that's just woke." What would you guys? What would you guys say to that? You guys are just being woke.
2: Well, I come from conservative politics, right? Like I worked in conservative politics. You worked
1: in the Gov's office. <laughs> that's very I true. Did. She Didn't did. I heard this. The yes.
2: So that label is very familiar to me, and I'm also very familiar with how it is thrown around to dismiss people and dismiss ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one thing that was said, you guys remember, past for those of you listening, remember Pastor Jody Bean? Um, Jody led our racial reconciliation group. And one thing he said that really struck home with me to this point was, The idea of, you know, reconciliation, horizontal reconciliation, pursuing justice in the here and now might feel like a new thing to us, Mm. right? Like the whole idea of being woke is that we're just evolving to appease the culture or accommodate the culture. Like Mm -hmm. there goes a new political trend and you guys are just appeasing that. You're Mm -hmm. capitulating to the culture. That's the idea of being woke. You're constantly becoming more enlightened and you're getting away from traditional orthodoxy to do so. And Jody said, This discussion about justice in the church might feel like a new thing, but when we actually look at scripture with fresh eyes, we see that it's actually a very old thing. Mm -hmm. And that resonated with me. Yeah. Because here I also have been grappling with, like, well, I'm not used to these conversations in the church. And so therefore, it feels new and unfamiliar to me. It feels like we're bending or distorting the quote traditional gospel. But that's because. It was the traditional gospel that I was familiar with. My eyes actually weren't open to the passages in Scripture that, that call us to reckon with justice. You were
1: actually enculturated into a truncated gospel. Yes. That's what I would say to yes. you.
2: Yes. Therefore, all of these pieces felt new to me. Yep. But they weren't actually new.
1: No, they're in Scripture all along. You just yes. didn't have eyes to see them or those Scriptures were conveniently ignored or not given the the full force of what they're saying. Exactly. I
0: well, think... Go ahead, Cameron. I was say even outside of Scripture... If you look throughout history, like there's a good chance we would still have slavery today if it wasn't for Christians,
1: yep, mm-hmm.
0: um, fighting against like the evil of slavery. Yes, um, so like the church has always been had a role of reforming and creating a more shalom filled culture and world around us. And so if there's ramifications of that, that then our culture says, hey, here are things that are important because of that. I don't know why that would be threatening to us when we're the ones who kind of started it all anyway.
1: Totally. I mean, uh, John Ortberg wrote this book. I can't remember what it's called. It's like, who is this man referring to Jesus? And one of the big through lines of that book, it was years ago that I read it, is he just started detailing all the things that exist in society that were started by Christians Hmm. in the name of Jesus. Like if you were to drive around and look at the names of hospitals, you don't notice most of them have a Christian, like a Mm -hmm. Christian title, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's like, okay, so clearly educational institutions, like all these things, caring for sick people, caring for poor, like all of these things were started by Christians and have been there all along. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, Man, I I just think this is so important that I, I the, the other thing that I've, I I want to name is that, and I wrote this in a blog post recently about how things shape us. I think this is a big part of what's happening, Katie and Cameron, with this conversation is that people are being shaped by their politics.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, mm-hmm. yep. like I've said before, if yep. you watch 10 hours of Fox News, well, that's going to have a shaping influence on you. Mm-hmm. If you watch 10 hours of CNN, that's going to have a shaping influence on you and I don't think those news outlets, those media outlets and politics are doing the best job giving healthy categories of what's going on. They're contributing to the polarity and the vitriol in our culture. And so what's happening is, especially I noticed with people who are, are digesting or taking in a lot of conservative political media, what ends up happening is, is that these things we're talking about, justice, righteousness, caring for the poor, economic equality, things like that are sort of... Um, Within a political framework uh, labeled liberal Mm -hmm. or progressive or woke, right? Yeah. And go ahead. And so then what happens is when they hear us talk about these things, their primary lens isn't scriptural or biblical, a kingdom mindset, they dismiss it out of a political lens. So one of the things uh, your dad, Katie, has has helped me because he also comes from a pretty conservative political environment is is one time he just said, look, the political left has co-opted these biblical categories. They don't get to have like a corner on caring for the poor or advocating for justice. Like those are biblical categories before they're political categories. So I actually think there's some reclaiming we have to do here. To go, this is this is like a Jesus thing. This isn't a left or right thing.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does that make yeah, sense? It does, and it reminds me of a a podcast from N.T. Wright I was listening to recently, where um he would agree with everything you just said, and he would say, and the fact that people put the political categories first is partly the fault of the church. Mm-hmm. Maybe because the church hasn't been leading in these areas like we should have. Yep. There have been political movements that have said, well, then we'll do it. Yep. And then they get out there and get to define what it looks like to advocate for justice. So no, anything, anytime you talk about justice, we immediately think, of that oh, thing. that's that political movement because the church hasn't been out in front of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think I heard him. Um, and of course, he's not from the United States. He spent a lot of time here because he's traveled and, and whatever. but. I, I heard him um, filter a question or field a question related to Black Lives Matter.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's kind of his logic is like, well, why did that movement come into existence? Mm-hmm. But because of the failure of the church to lead the charge in creating unity under Jesus. Mm-hmm right? Mm -hmm. And so I think there is something to say there. I think you're on it to go, man, when we look at some of these social movements that we might want to like keep at arm's length, whatever those might be, um, we ought to ask the question in more of a reflective posture to go, why do these movements exist in the first place? Maybe it's because of our failure to actually live out the way of Jesus with faithfulness. Mm
2: -hmm. And then the way we live them out isn't going to align with either political party.
1: Yep. Um, I want to share a quote. And this is from a conservative person. And this is in response to the question, are we woke? So this is from Richard Foster. He said back in 1992, so this is a book I was reading recently. He said, the true prophetic me- message always calls us to a spiritual defiance of the world as it is now. Our prayer to the extent that it is fully authentic undermines the status quo. It is a spiritual underground resistance movement. We are subversives in a world of injustice, oppression, and violence. Like Amos of old, we demand that justice roll down like waters and righteousness, like an ever overflowing stream. We plead the case of the orphan and the widow or whoever the helpless ones are in our context. In our prayers and in our actions we stand firm against racism, sexism, nationalism, ageism and every other ism that separates and splits and divides. We become the voice of the voiceless, pleading their cause all the way to the throne of heaven. We demand to be heard, we insist that changes be made. Mm, I love that. This is not this is not a lefty liberal woke, right? This is this is someone who is just simply like immersed in the gospel. Mhm. And 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 the scriptures. So, um, man, I just think we have a lot of work to do. I think that the church needs to recapture this sacrificial spirit um, of living into the way of Jesus and engaging what's actually happening with the posture and presence of Christ. And it's gotta be marked by this cruciform love, this mm. Calvary-like love. Mm-hmm. And I don't think this is a gospel add-on. I don't think this is liberal or woke. I just think this is exactly what Jesus was inviting us into.
2: Mm-hmm. So, all right, these ideas are all really great in concept, but what would you guys say this actually looks like? Like, what, are we, what do we do if we actually want to move towards reconciliation in the world?
0: Mm. Well, I can jump in first. Go for it. Um, because I wrote down a passage that you just quoted, the Amos mm. 5 one. Um, that Martin Luther King Jr. quotes about the day of the Lord being painful for sometimes for God's people and justice rolling on like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Um, That passage, if you go and read it, is like in direct response to the fact that um, of like economic inequality in Israel at the time and Mm. how there were people who were really struggling to make ends meet and even have food. Um, and the people of God were just spending all their time having these great religious festivals. And so I think this shows that like Shalom, this reconciliation is also about like the economics in the world and helping people who are struggling and making sure everyone has the opportunity to flourish.
1: That's a that's an amazing word. It reminds me um, a couple years ago, I got super obsessed, like manically obsessed with the book of Leviticus. You may have remembered mm-hmm. this. Um and you know, for many people, they probably think it 's a boring book, but I was just fascinated by it and I, I part of what I learned is that God is rescuing the people of Israel out of a system of exploitation that they were enslaved to, right, and so this people that God is drawing near to himself to be a nation of priests don 't have healthy categories of equality or equity they 've they 've been enslaved to a system of exploitation. And what, what we see in the book of Leviticus is God, um, we may just look at these as like archaic rules, but actually, especially when you compare it to the neighboring countries, God is like casting vision and putting rules in place to ensure shalom, to ensure that there's justice and righteousness across, across the community, um, and so one example is just like the year of Jubilee, like every seven years, all debts will be canceled. That, that's just one example. And what we see God doing there is basically saying that, uh, look, um, we're gonna ensure that there isn't like an underclass that becomes normative here. And we're making sure that the economy, we're subordinating the economy to the common good, mm. right? So that for the sake of shalom, so over I'm just saying like when you look at the Old Testament, many of the things that you see attached to this conversation of pursuing justice and righteousness, these were instructions God was giving to the people of Israel right out of the, right as they were coming out of a system of exploitation to ensure equity across the mm. community
3: mm.
1: Cool. and you know the early church nailed this I mean the early church was known for this um it was a place where people we even have talked about this from the pulpit as we've been preaching through the book of Acts, but you see them leaning in sharing everything in common so that no one is in need. The early church got mm-hmm, this. Mm-hmm. They, they, and we see this for the first 300 years of church history really well, that this was a community that um, didn't see their resources primarily as their, as their own, but they opened their hands to share with one another so that no one would be lacking.
2: Mm. And the beautiful part is that they wanted to.
1: Absolutely. The it wasn't coerced. Right. They weren't even they looking the for the government to do it. Yeah. They saw it as their responsibility to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um let me throw out another one of like what this might look like to live into Shalom. Um I think I think uh Shalom will involve men and women uh serving alongside one another as one in Christ. Hmm. Um There's this really powerful statement from Galatians 3 where Paul says that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we're all one in Christ. And so what he's doing is saying, like, I mean, he's naming all of these hierarchies, Mm -hmm. these Um, categories that reinforce power and divide. And he's saying in Christ, they're rendered null and void. And one of those he names is this category or distinction that our world makes between uh, men and women and often ways empowers men over women, Mm -hmm. right? So there's a gender hierarchy he's, he's naming there and he's saying, no, 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 men and women are one in Christ. And I would just say like this is this is God's design. Going back to Shalom, Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22, what we see in Jesus and the ministry of Paul, um, there is no gender hierarchy that we see there. In in Genesis 1 and 2, both men and women are created in God's image. They're equally given the command to oversee creation and to be fruitful and multiply. It's not until the fall that we see the first hierarchy being instituted, where part of the curse that God announces over in Adam, Adam and Eve is that, look... Your desire is going to be to him, for him to rule over him, but he's going to rule over you. Mm -hmm. So um, I just want to say that uh, to the degree that the church is propping up gender hierarchy, reinforcing patriarchy, I think they're actually perpetuating the very curse of the fall. And in Jesus, we see him discipling women, traveling, allowing women to travel. These were very controversial moves he was doing. With Paul, you see him um, affirming women. Read, read. Romans 16, and look at all the women that Paul is referencing. There's there's female deacons, female apostles. I mean, it's it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so I know as, as a church a couple of years ago, we made this shift to include women on our leadership team and in our preaching. And that was really in response to this trajectory that we see in scripture: that we're one in Christ, and that um, people's ability to participate in the kingdom isn't based on body parts, but on character and calling and spiritual empowerment. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, we had a lot of people, I shouldn't say a lot, a few families leave loudly arguing that we were capitulating to culture. And my response was actually it's the opposite. Uh, this gender hierarchy is a response to the fall. It's been the normative thing throughout history for men to dominate over women. And in fact, that's a capitulation to culture. Mm-hmm. But as kingdom people, we're called to work towards God's ideal. And this involves men and women serving alongside one another as equals. And again, the early church got this. Um, many, uh, even Pagan writers uh, in the early church criticized the early church as a "quote unquote" women's religion because women were found uh, found a home in the church and were empowered to operate out of their gifting. Mm. Yeah,
2: this is an issue I've been doing a lot of thinking and reading and research about lately, and we could do a whole separate episode just on this. Alone, we should right? do an
1: entire series on this. Yeah. In the future, if people, if people would be interested in that,
2: well, because going back to the what I was saying about you know fifteen twenty years ago, Katie inheriting a truncated gospel, this was one of those areas where I was given a few verses, I think, without proper context. Um, to reinforce gender hierarchy as God's design. And the more I've actually learned about the verses and the context for those verses and the meaning behind them and the actual words that were used, the more I've um, seen that that's not actually the case.
1: I know. And that's part of my frustration in inviting people to sit down and talk uh, with charity and love uh, seeking to learn is that they there's there's a few verses, really one that people kind of bring to the table and it's like, okay, do you think we don't know that that's there? Let's open it up. Let's look at the entire context of 1 Timothy. Let's look at these verses in the Greek because I, I want to name, let's take it literally. Mm-hmm. Like, let's read this literally in the Greek languages and I'll tell you what this verse is saying, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Let's understand it mm-hmm. because I don't think it's saying, it's not saying the conclusion that you're, it, it's not affirming the conclusion you're reaching.
2: Yeah. So, you know, shalom in some ways looks like moving moving away from gender hierarchy and towards equality. And I would say in some ways the church has been one of the biggest offenders of erecting gender hierarchies.
1: Yeah, we've been complicit in that.
2: Hmm. Um. But gender isn't the only type of hierarchy. Another one is race. Mm. Um. And this is an issue we've spent quite a bit of time on here, um, especially in this church. Macky and I lead our racial peacemaking kingdom community, which has been a big opportunity for me to learn about what the Bible says about race. Um. But you know, I think the basic idea that as fallen human beings, we've done some pretty terrible things throughout history that have often resulted us moving in the opposite direction of reconciliation, right? Like we've, you talk about the, the original God's original intent, Cameron in the garden of Eden, Eden. We've done a lot to move us away from that, like towards greater separation. Um, We've propped up certain people at the expense of other people we've perpetuated injustice and violence and oppression and we do that by creating categories between people and one of those categories has been
1: race. Mm. Which is um, one of the pushbacks I've received, Katie, is that oh, if you talk about race, you're just reinforcing a social construct.
2: Yes. So what would let you me, say about well, that? let me address that. Um,
1: well do it.
2: Well, okay. I will I would say yes, race is a social construct. It is and it's been used to perpetuate oppression. Mm. And so if we want to move towards reconciliation, we need to understand how racial categories were created and how they have been used to perpetuate injustice, violence and oppression in order to move towards Shalom. Mm. Right? So we can't just start the conversation by going, let's act like racism doesn't exist and has never existed because we just want to be peaceful and all get along. That's that's not peace. That's pseudo peace. That feels like peace to those of us who haven't actually been negatively impacted by it, right? If we actually want peace, the shalom that Cameron was talking about earlier, we have to start by going, where are we? How did we get here? Um, In this country, especially, I think there's there's an important conversation to be had. And we have to ask as followers of Christ, what's our role in it? And it starts by really taking an honest look at, at how these categories have been created to, to, to steal a term from UMAC, to de Imago Dei people. Mm-hmm. Like as followers of Jesus, if we see everyone is made in the image of Christ, everyone is made in the image of Christ, everybody. No one has more dignity or more worth or more value than any other human being. Everyone has, is made in the image of God. What have we done to push against that? I think that's where the conversation has to start.
1: Yeah. You know, I've had a lot of conversations with people about this who maybe are a bit skeptical about racial peacemaking or have some resistance to it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And one of the things I've noticed is um, they'll quote the scriptural ideal, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That, yeah, of course, people are creating the image of God. Um, of course, of course, Jesus died for them. Of course, one person's not more important than the other, so why can't we just like live that way? Mm-hmm. You know and um, and my response is often because that's not happening. So you've got the ideal, but let's just be honest. Let's open our eyes and look at where that ideal is not being lived out. And then sort of building on Cameron's point that we're to be working towards Shalom, anywhere this is happening, like to the degree we deny that it's happening or pretend it's not happening, we're actually not being faithful to God's kingdom vision of Shalom. Mm-hmm. So we've got to have our eyes open and we have a lot to lose if we ignore it or pretend it's it's not happening. Mm-hmm. So yes, you know, in Colossians 3, Paul says, hey, look, there's no Jew nor Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Like he says these types of things. We should get rid of all those categories that divide. yes. And in Revelation, we see every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping around the throne. So there's diversity and unity. Yes, let's pursue that vision. But part of pursuing that vision means if we see that, that there's something standing in the way of that, we've got to uh, name it mm-hmm. and then join God's work in doing something about it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And mm-hmm. so I don't understand, to that regard, I don't understand the resistance um, in naming when uh, racial hierarchies are dividing people both on an individual level or on a, a societal level. I'm not, I, I think that we have a lot to lose if we kind of put our blinders on and ignore ignore those things hap- happening because then we aren't able to participate in God's restorative work in the world.
2: Right, and I can't entirely answer that, but I do think it has something to do with the political lenses we were talking about mm-hmm, earlier, mm-hmm. right? Because the racial conversation has been co-opted by the political conversation, You every single word automatically triggers associations with political movements
1: yes you know i'll name this for our listeners or share this about myself because this is katie this is one of the ways you help me a lot is i am not digesting a lot of political media Hmm. or news but i'm immersed in like theological and scriptural reading. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and and so what that means is that um, sometimes I'm saying things and I don't realize those people who have maybe are seeing everything through a political lens might be hearing me one way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and so you've been helpful to me in helping connect those dots so I can provide hopefully proper nuances and and kind of bring people along as we try to engage the scriptures faithfully. Yeah. All right, what else? Uh, positive vision for person, like we're being reconciled towards something, which is shalom. What else does this look like or entail?
0: I think another one um, is just that, well, all the people and humans in God's creation will be reconciled at the end of time. Uh, also all of creation will, like animals and plants and the land. Um, and so I think part of working for reconciliation of all things and shalom means that we care for and steward the earth and the land and the resources that God has given us.
1: Uh, just a tree hugger, huh, Cameron? Mm-hmm. Is that what you're
0: advocating for? Totally. We should all hug trees. Mm.
2: <laughs> you are wearing a Patagonia fleece. There we go. Damn.
0: Covered in bark from hugging trees this morning <laughs> yeah. on my way to school. What,
1: what did they call mulch? Uh, you grew up on the West Coast. What did they call what we would, would refer to as mulch? Oh, bark dust. Bark dust. <laughs> <laughs> I love some of those cultural differences yes. where it's just like different terminology. I think yeah, that's I was so
0: funny. Leading a mission trip with students right after I moved out here, and I said, Go stand on the bark dust. And they all just laughed at me and looked very confused. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. like, This is so simple. Aren't you getting it? Yeah, I go stand there.
1: Yeah, again, just another example of how people's frames have been co opted by politics so that we see creation care as liberal. Rather than simply biblical. I mean, the very first command <laughs> before the fall was for hu- hu- human beings to care for creation.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, it's because some of the loudest voices out there right now are saying creation care looks exactly like this it's X, yeah. Y, and Z, right? And there's yeah. a conversation or a place for the church to step forward and go, well, here's a biblical version. Uh, a- biblical ideal for caring for creation. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And you know, I think um, a lot of people can kind of get obsessed with the national conversation and it gets really polarized quickly. And, and we just kind of have intellectual debates. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm passionate about, and I know you guys are too, is just finding, okay, we can have those conversations and let's do so with emotional maturity, et cetera. But why don't we just get to work locally Mm -hmm. and then like body the kingdom here. So, I mean, if you guys are listening and going, okay, so what? Well, we, uh, we've we adopted the highway just outside of our church, you know, and we're responsible for keeping it clean. And so a few times a year, we sort of organized a highway cleanup. I know we did this as a staff um, this past year, and I was shocked at like all the stuff we picked up. Mm-hmm. A lot of beer cans, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. you know? What, what I'm saying though is that, the, hey, there's like, some tangible things we can do to mm-hmm. care for our little plot of land yeah. here in Oconomowoc. Yeah, the know? government's
2: going to do what the government's going to do, but we have a whole lot of agency to just do the work ourselves.
1: Yeah, and I think this is just me talking. This isn't, uh, I guess I, I would say I'm not speaking on behalf of our church, but it seems that the scientific community at large is kind of naming, hey, the the global climate is heading in a direction that could be pretty dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I know there's some people that, there's some people I know who just go, oh, global warming isn't real and climate change isn't a thing. And um, I'm not an expert there, but it seems like we have a lot to, like we're risking something pretty significant if we if we are heading in that direction and choose to ignore it. It mm-hmm. uh, could have some pretty dire consequences. And I think if we go back to that first sort of creational command, love creation, tend to creation, care for creation. God's saying the same way I care for you, lovingly steward uh, steward everything you're, you're touching and interacting with. We have some work to do.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, rather than approaching our planet as something to be exploited and used, we should consider it something to be loved and cared for. Um, I'll throw another one out. Um, When people are living into the kingdom, they're living at peace and in right relationship with each other. You know, one of the first things that happens after the fall um, in Genesis 3, a chapter later, we have the first murder Mm -hmm. where Cain murders his brother Abel. And of course, violence and murder and killing has been happening ever since. Um, And Jesus came, to abolish violence and death. Um, And Jesus didn't do that by acting violently. He didn't pick up a sword. He went to the cross. He embodied peace in order to create peace. And he calls us to do the same thing, to be everyday peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so part of God's kingdom ideal is a place free from violence and killing. You know, in Isaiah 2, 4, um, he gives a vision of this. He says, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against the nation, nor will they train for war anymore. What a powerful vision of God's shalom that these weapons, spears and swords will be beaten into instruments that going back to what you were talking about, Uh, Cameron tend the soil and cultivate life and things that grow and nations aren't going to fight against each. They're not even going to train for war because we're going to live at peace with one another. So what that means is, is if we're followers of Jesus and ambassadors of the kingdom, we're to be living into that right now. We're to be embodying a nonviolent enemy love, peacemaking way of life as a community here and now. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah working toward, praying toward that end. And again, the early church got this. Um, they knew how to love their enemies and they saw the transformation that that came when they when they did that well.
2: Yeah, and again, I would go, there's there's a conversation about like the government and foreign policy and things like that. And then there's just the idea of embodying it as a people, as yeah. God's people embodying peace in the world.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think that... Um, this really dovetails really nicely into it's a very practical way that we can live this out mm-hmm. right here and now um, when we live in such like a polarized and divided and, you know, even if we're not physically violent with each other, very verbally and mm-hmm. emotionally violent with each other, that inside the walls of our church, like we want to be a community that can when difficult things come up or difficult topics or problems that instead of kind of throwing those spears and swords at each other, we're like coming together. Um, under Jesus to like talk things out and figure mm-hmm. things out and um, like work out that reconciliation. Yeah.
1: Yes. I think that's a, a big thing is instead of um, kind of blowing up, learning how to lean into inevitable conflicts, whenever two or more people are gathered, not only is Jesus present, but there will be conflict. <laughs> so, so learning how to lean into that with emotional maturity as peacemakers.
0: Yeah. 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 I think another way um, that we want to like embody this reconciliation as a church, like kind of inside the walls of our church, um, is uh, also reflect the diversity of our context. We want to be a place where all people in our community feel welcome to come here and to worship and to, you know, Mm -hmm. be a part of our community. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And it strikes me that our community is. not incredibly diverse compared to maybe mm-hmm. an urban environment or whatever, but in a lot of ways I look at our community and I, I celebrate the diversity that we do have because it does seem to, uh, at least to some degree, represent the diversity within our community. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. That's exciting to me. Yeah. What, what about out? Okay, so Cameron, I hear you casting vision for sort of inside the walls of the church,
3: mm-hmm.
1: right? Um, what about outside the walls of our church as we live on mission?
2: So, Mac, you often say, I don't know if this is a quote for some from someone else. We want to be as a church a sign, an instrument, and uh, sorry, <laughs> a sign, an instrument, and a foretaste of the kingdom.
1: Yeah, I did not come up with that. Um, that's a famous um, line from Leslie Newbegin. Mm. Um, he was like a, a missionary that returned to. Um, you know the West and kind of brought some interesting frames that I think has catalyzed the church to engage God's mission in a, in a fresh way. But um, a sign is we're to point to God's kingdom In the way we live, uh, people should see us pointing to God's kingdom. An in instrument, um, we're to be participants in God's mission, actively joining God's work in the world. And a foretaste is just that when people encounter us, they should get a, a taste of the kingdom of God. I like to uh, talk about, I preached a sermon on this once that were to be pink spoons.
3: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: So when I grew up, um, there was a Baskin Robbins near our house. Um, Their tagline was like 31 flavors. And so you'd go in there and there's kind of like all these choices. And they had these little pink spoons where you could sample the kind of ice cream that you might want to get before you actually purchased it. Mm -hmm. So these little pink spoons, you get to sample the ice cream. And I use that as an object lesson just to say, you're to be a pink spoon. Like people should, when they encounter you, when they experience you, they should get a little bit of a taste of God's kingdom Mm
3: -hmm.
1: in advance, in the here and now. And so in a lot of ways, we're to cultivate an embodied expressions of God's tomorrow as a community.
2: I think Wayland's has the pink spoons. Oh, do they? I think so. That's awesome. Yeah, the gelato place may is. As- I'm not sure if those are pink, but I just love that because I think that gives us a picture of what it looks like to work for reconciliation outside the walls of the church as well, right? Like we are, we are, we are working towards shalom. We're building relationships with people. I think the church has unfortunately been um, really good at kind of isolating itself in some ways and drawing lines around who's in and who's out right? Here's what you need to do to be inside the, the church. And those people, um, they don't belong here. But reconciliation requires building relationships with people outside the church, and not because we see them as people to be fixed or problems to be solved or people that we just want to convert to grow our own numbers, but because we actually love them and want to move towards them in love.
1: I, was ha- I had a conversation with someone about this just yesterday, And we started talking about what's called contact theory. And it's this idea that um, relationships between conflicting groups will improve as they have meaningful contact with one another. So as you talk about like this us versus them sort of mentality, Mm -hmm. it seems to me as we move toward other people who are different, or we may not agree with and have meaningful interactions with them, Uh, gradually what happens is this transformation where it's no longer an us versus them, but an us without a them, Hmm. right? But it doesn't happen unless we move toward, quote unquote, the other, Mm -hmm. the person who's different from us. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And it's as we do that we begin to recognize that we share a lot in common.
2: Mm -hmm. And we don't have to agree on everything. No. But we see them as people made in the image of God. So I think Uh, the church has important work to do to be um, engaged in the work of repairing so Katie, been.
0: are you saying that we don't want people to find and follow Jesus outside the walls of our church? No. You said we don't want to convert them?
2: No, I'm saying we don't want to move towards people solely with an agenda of, of bringing them to our church. I think we want to love people where they are and let the Holy Spirit be at work in their lives and open to how the Holy Spirit wants to use us. And maybe that means they end up coming here or, you know, pursuing, um, their own faith journey. Um, but if it doesn't, we're still called to love them.
1: So sort of resisting this, treating people like a project, Mm -hmm. like, uh, Cameron, what if every interaction I had with you, just as a hypothetical, was to try to get you to join our CrossFit gym. Mm-hmm. How would you... That's such a hypothetical. <laughs> yeah. I
0: can't even imagine. Would Wait, you- give me a minute. Let yeah, me yeah, think yeah. about what that what
1: would, that would like. be like. Yeah. Would you respond uh, well to that, or would you dig your heels in in active resistance and defiance and go home and bake croissants? <laughs> and join the Y. Yeah.
0: That's right. Yeah, no, I think it's true, but I think that sometimes we can swing so far the other way that we forget that reconciliation for someone's good does mean following Jesus, and we hope that that happens. And I'm not saying you Mm -hmm. were actually saying that, Mm -hmm, Katie. mm -hmm. I just didn't want to pass over that point. So we do still care about people following Jesus, but not because of some numbers that we put in our annual report at the end of the year, but because I do think that is what best brings shalom into someone's life.
1: 100%. I mean, the gospel writers had an agenda, you guys they had an agenda for people and that was to, they wanted people to become followers of Jesus.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But, and and I agree, Cameron, like that's ultimately what I want for every single human being is to discover the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ and become a disciple. Um, but I think what you're saying, Katie, is there's, there's, like, there's like a posture that's consistent with who God is in that work. Mm-hmm. And it's not coercive or filled with pressure tactics, but it's this loving presence trusting the Holy Spirit to do the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: because often the desire to convert people, what I've seen, is very absent of love and very aggressive.
1: <laughs> are you talking about the the attempts to bring you to CrossFit or are you talking about uh, converting people All to Jesus? All of the above, okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, so you guys both mentioned the word presence um, and the idea of a loving presence. And I think... Um, just the idea of embodying a loving and a maybe a non-anxious presence comes to mind, right? Like I don't have to convince anyone that we're living in a very anxious and divided time. And I think one way the church can advocate for shalom in the world is by embodying a loving and non-anxious presence.
1: Mm. Yep. That's probably also another entire podcast series of non-anxious presence. Yeah. Because we're living in, living in anxious times.
2: Yeah, but again, I would just say, this is the work of building bridges, right? It's the work of reconciling between people groups, especially those on the margins, um, restoring brokenness, meeting needs, physical, emotional, spiritual, pursuing healing. Um, these are all practical ways that we can pursue reconciliation outside the walls of the church.
1: Well, let me um, maybe last kind of chunk of, of dialogue here would just be to talk about how can our community grow into this if this feels new mm-hmm. um, we need to go beyond just like saying things on social media as I've I've was saying earlier I think we need to learn how to embody this here and now in our community um, our staff read this book together a f- few years ago to help grow, help us grow into this. Um, it was a book called Mending the Divides by uh, Jer Swigart and John Huckins. Jer, Jer and I go way back. He was my youth pastor growing up and officiated Josie and I's wedding. But they talk about four practices that will help in terms of being, growing into active participation in God's mission of Shalom. So just real quick, Uh, The first practice they name is seeing, learning to see other people the way Jesus sees them. This is a major theme in the gospels. If you just do a search on Jesus, see, you'll, you'll discover that over and over he sees people in a way that everybody else misses. And because of that, he moves towards them with love in a way that other people weren't. So learning to see people the way Jesus sees them. Secondly is to immerse and by this, they mean move toward people relationally, get proximate, get close to people, all right? Which is kind of that contact theory stuff we were just talking about. But Jesus consistently moves towards people that other people kept a distance from. Thirdly is contend. And this is where we actually advocate or work work towards shalom. We fight for justice or we, we embody something for their good which again, we see Jesus doing consistently. He brings healing. He restores dignity. He does all these things. Um, And that only happens as a result of getting close. It's only as a result of proximity and immersing that we know what's best for that person and how to Mm -hmm. advocate on their behalf. And then finally is this practice of restore. And this isn't so much something we do as much as when we see God's kingdom breaking in, we rejoice and we celebrate, about, uh, celebrate those moments where we see God's shalom taking place. So um, maybe we can put that book in the show notes, um, but it might be a good reference point for people who are going, man, I wanna be part of God's you know, restorative mission in the world, uh, but I don't know how. It's a good, it's a good sort of um, introductory, introductory work.
0: Um, yeah, so I would encourage anyone listening um, to think about, like, this is these are great ideas, like we've said, but they require some action for actually going to live into this value. Um, and so, you know, whether it's if any of these topics or things we were talking about really like grabbed you, that's awesome. Um, if not, I would just encourage you to spend some time praying and asking God to like reveal to you, like, what breaks his heart or to see the world mm-hmm. the way he sees it um and then find a local way to get involved with that you know like like we were talking about not just on a national level or an idea level of something to care about but what does that actually look like in lake country or in southeast wisconsin and i would just encourage you um when you listen to this like our facebook our Crosspoint community Facebook group is like a great place to do that. Because mm. um, I often, I know I moved here like six years ago, and especially at first, but even now, there's like lots of things that I just don't know about in our area or like what exists here. But there's lots of people in our church who have grown up here and have a lot of connections. they so just throw it out by like, hey, I really feel like God is prompting me to get involved with you know, how to like love people who are struggling economically or how to, um, love, like say like women who are in like crisis pregnancy stuff or Mm -hmm. care for God's creation and just like throw it out there and be like, Hey, is anyone else interested in that too? Does anyone know any resources that I could like follow up with and find a way to actually get plugged in and involved? That's awesome.
1: Thanks Cameron. Um, well, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Next time, we're going to wrap up this series on core values by discussing what we can do when we actually fail to live into our values. Um, we'll never be able to live into our values perfectly. And so we believe that healthy organizations have a process in place to clean up the messes that occur when we fail to live into our values and to do so with honesty and emotional maturity. So we hope you'll tune in, tune in next time as we talk about how to clean up our messes. And we'll see you then.
2: Praxis is recorded and produced at crosspoint community church you can find out more about the show and our church at crosspointwi.com if you have any questions comments or have any suggestions for future topics feel free to send us an email also if you enjoy the show consider leaving a review and if you haven't already be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts